Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Well, if you're a football or a soccer fan, this is the podcast for you. Whether you call it soccer or football, depending <laughs> on where you are in the world, I have called it soccer and football throughout the last two podcasts that we've done, and uh, varying depending on who I'm talking to. I did notice though that you in this one, <laughs> I was better the, on football. The, the shift was definitely more towards football. Yes, I was so making conscious effort. Some would say that this is a sign of sophistication <laughs> because of the coverage of the sport that we've done. So that's successful. Well, I said to Ross uh, right at the beginning of our podcast uh, around the World Cup that uh, my goal was to learn a lot more than I know about football. And um, I certainly came at it with a, with a fair degree of ignorance. And uh, as you'll discover in the next uh, hour and a half, we have spoken to two individuals, including one who is a, a real specialist that opened my eyes to the sport. So wonderful just to be able to get more knowledge. I will certainly see the sport in a completely different way. Mm. Mm. Agreed. It was really, really good. I... Um, <coughs> wanted to uncover some hidden elements of the sport and we found I think the the perfect person so that that was fun and then and then always fun to speak to Sean because he's in Qatar living and we live vicariously sometimes through Sean because he's at the events we wish we were at some days so speaking of football uh, Ross as usual you've got a caught my eye which you want to get into yeah one one football from Korean Kielty a while back admittedly but she wrote in on Patreon, and once again, thanks to all our patrons. Um, I've tried in the last while to actually share more regularly there, and with Twitter the way that it is and may be, I'm definitely going to do more of that, put videos and post up. Yeah. Anyway, Corinne got in touch. She said, I saw this and linked to an article in the BBC, uh, which is all about uh, boots and balls are made for men and injury risk to women's footballers. And Corinne was saying, for many years, women's sports kit has been victim to shrink it and pink it. I've never heard this. A good one. <laughs> Uh, fortunately, especially in cycling, this has become much better and women's specific kit is now widely available. However, as the mother of football playing daughter, I know the sport really lags behind others, football and others. So the article is about, and it interviews a few researchers talking about the lack of football kits specific for women and the boots and balls for male players could be putting women at higher risk. And the premise with boots is that the arch and the shape of the woman's foot is slightly different. You know this as a running editor. Yeah. You must cover it in your annual shoe edition all the time, yeah. right? Um, and so there's there's a journal called Sports Engineering, and a group of them have basically argued that it's time for manufacturers to step up and make football boots specific for women's feet because it'll have injury reduction implications. Stress fractures, for instance, the loading on the plantar fascia and the arch, and then also the stud orientation because... And I mean, I remember once we, we reviewed a study for rugby where they were messing about with where the studs are and showing that the traction and the torsion can be changed. And that has implications potentially for pretty serious knee injuries. And knowing that women might be at risk of those, that's um, a factor that they now need to potentially explore. So yeah. interesting. And then the ball we've covered, actually, because many podcasts ago we spoke about 
women's football maybe needing a smaller ball. Yeah. Uh, in this article, they talk about the the ball potentially that men play with being heavy, causing concussions. One thing I wonder about is if you make it smaller and it travels faster, presum- presumably it does, then the velocity component of kinetic energy goes up. You know, remember your high school yeah. physics, mass velocity squared, half mass velocity squared. So it seems to me that the speed of the ball might offset the mass reduction. Yeah. And I don't know that there are injury benefits to that, but there are definitely playing benefits. Incidentally. So there are. So there are. If a ball, if somebody headers a ball and the ball's coming at some speed, there is a risk of concussion. Yeah, concussion mm. and repeated head impacts. And in mm. fact, both we spoke on two podcasts back about rugby's concussion concerns. Football has the same ones. Last year, rugby and football were both called in front of the English parliamentary committees to answer for what they were doing about this. And many countries have banned heading the ball in younger children which I think is fair. I mean, there's only a few times in the game you headed the ball. It's different to argue that compared to banning the tackle because the tackle is fundamental to rugby. The heading is not fundamental. It, it's part of, but it's not fundamental to playing football, right? Yeah. But yeah, there are, there are concerns about that. And this article saying that a smaller, lighter ball might reduce that. I wouldn't be as quick to say yes to that one. I'd want to look at how energy transfer might change it. You might find higher speed is worse than... Heavier mass. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> that's, <coughs> excuse me, all part of this article that Corinne shared. So thanks for that. Very interesting. So we had a chance to talk to, uh, I always consider um, Sean Engel kind of almost the third member of the Sounds of Sport podcasting <laughs> team because he's been on our podcast so regularly. But Sean is in Qatar. Um, and what, I, what he offers us as a chief sports writer for the Guardian newspaper, not only is Fantastic stuff. You, you just go, go into the God. If you want to know about any of the sports that he is involved in, he has such a way of writing and explaining some complex issues that I find his stuff um, massively informative. But he, he's, he's right at the coalface of the sport and he gives us an insight um, not only to how the tournament is going, but some of the science and some of the uh, some of the sort of ideas about how the sport has been played at the moment. Yeah, this is a World Cup of off-field news as much as on-field yeah. stories and results. So he's there for that primarily. I was surprised. He said, I think he said in the interview five matches he's been to, but he's producing two articles a day because yeah. there's so much. You can imagine there's so much happening off the field, not football related. So we got a little bit of insight from him on that. But then also this football stuff, you can tell this. he, he knows his stuff about the game and he's written for decades on football. And this is, I found very interesting actually to hear him because we've spoken to him before about chess of all things, athletics, <laughs> the transgender issues. But now on football, it feels like we were on home ground for Sean. So very, really interesting, loved yeah. it. So live from Qatar, Mr. Sean Engel. So welcome, Sean. I know that you're talking to us all the way from uh, Qatar and always lovely to speak to you as you're at the cold face of uh, all the stuff that we talk about from afar. You're actually there doing the stuff. Uh, tell us about what, what it's been like uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks working in a, in a very strange environment, I think, for you as a journalist in soccer or football. Well, it's been um, a very different World Cup to normal. Uh, you're often uh, at World Cups. You're, you're in one city. So in South Africa in 2010, I was based in Johannesburg. And I do games in Johannesburg, Pretoria and Polokwane. Here, all the games are taking place in Doha and the surrounding area. Uh, and because there's been so much news with Budweiser, with the LGBT stuff, with the uh, uh, workers' rights stuff, with various <laughs> other, with Gianni Infantino going off on one before the, um, the start, <laughs> 
it's it's felt much more like an Olympics. You know, we all come into this main media center, then go out. Everything is in one place. So it has a different rhythm um, and, and pace to, to most World Cups. I, I was actually commenting to Ross before we did the podcast that when you look up latest news on the, on, on the World Cup, there doesn't seem to be a lot of news. There's obviously some political stuff, but I'd imagine there would be more news. But you have just mentioned there's been a couple of um, grinding stories that have actually been quite highlighted. We, we haven't seen too many of those here in, here in South Africa, strangely enough. So it's well, been quite busy. Yeah it's, yeah, it's been enormously busy. I mean, back home in England, there's been lots of talk about the One Love armband and right. players not been allowed to wear it. That's that's sort of uh, taken up a lot of news. We've had the sort of the, the, the rows over how many uh, deaths of guest workers um, yeah. in the last decade in Qatar. We've had arguments about that. We've had the Qataris sort of sort of basically suggesting people that have criticised the, the World Cup here as, as racist. Um, and that's before we get to some of the sort of you know, sponsorship rows and, and, and football rows. So, uh, yeah, for me, as a news journalist, um, it's been it's been very busy. Because, uh, I mean, I, I, I visit the Guardian app and I look on Twitter and then I ex- am exposed to the One Love. And I, I saw, for instance, yesterday, Someone said that the migrant worker deaths was in the range of 500 to 600. Is that now? Is that now the official figure? They've acknowledged that it's way higher than Infantino's three. Did he say? No, well, they haven't really. No, they 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 have put out a clarification for that. So for those that are sort of starting from this from afresh, the Guardian reported in 2021 that um, I think six, at least 6,500 migrant deaths in Qatar over sort of the last 10 years, uh, but officially. Deaths on stadiums are just three. Now, the problem is the authorities don't really do sort of detailed post-mortems and, and analysis when, when, when there are deaths. But you speak to various human rights organisations and they talk about the number of, of, of people in their, their 20s and 30s and 40s who are dying um, much younger than you'd expect. These are people that have had medicals before they've left their, 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 their countries to come here, that they seem to be in raw and good health, but because of, of the work or for other reason, they, they, they died very young. So there's lots of um, contentious, um, sort of, mm. uh, sorry, there's been a very contentious sort of battleground between the Qatari authorities and, and, and the human rights groups and say the Guardian um, about how many people have actually died um, in the, on these sites. Yeah, yeah. So, so unless you go looking for it, or you're in a reading sources that are prioritizing it, you don't see yeah. it. And I think, to some extent, that's FIFA's bet, right? They, FIFA, understand the world, and they know that once the games start, especially four games a day, like we've had, the pace of the football action between the lines is so fast that any of these off-field stories get displaced. And remember, we spoke to David Epstein, and he said the biggest problem for the Olympics is that for three years. And 50 weeks, there's nothing. And then for two weeks, there's an Olympics. FIFA, FIFA know, they understand that they've got football all the time and it actually displaces the negative news. It's very funny you say that um, because actually uh, Infantino addressed this in his bizarre yes. uh, pre... He actually said at one point, oh, there are people that will say, oh, FIFA are bad, that Qatar is bad. But he sort of said, once that first game kicks off, They'll exactly. say they won't watch, but they will. And, and he was right. Whatever you thought Correct. about his, 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 his point, he was absolutely spot on with that. Um, it is interesting, though, how um, just sort of taking that sort of broad overview sweep, how different countries have covered it, because lots of us are just sticking to the football. Um, the headers and volleys, as we say, 
they're rather disparaging in sport news. They stick to the headers and volleys. While I think of the, the Guardian and, and the rest of the British press, we are trying to sort of juggle two balls. We, we are looking at, you know, the, the other stuff as well, as well as the football. Yeah, that's been my impression in South Africa is they're interested in the game. Yeah. The coverage is 24 hours. There's about six channels and so half the time they're showing the same thing on four of them because there's not enough to fill them. Yeah. But it's all just tactical and game and highlights and so on. The, 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 the story is secondary. So in that respect, they know their audience really, really well, you know. Um, yeah, I was going to, as a, as a follow-on to that, I had a question, but it's now slipped my mind. So well, I was going to ask you, but I mean, for you as a journalist working there and having, you know, covered a lot of sport, can you give us a bit of an idea of what you where you see the game at the World Cup? In other words, has it has it changed? Has it evolved? What's the standard like? Um, obviously, there's talk about the fact that it's in the middle of the European season. Has that improved the standard of the game because the players aren't as fatigued? What's the general consensus around this, the standard of football? It's a good question. I think it's hard to judge because there's been some absolute stinkers, but there always isn't in World Cup. And, and we've also had some great games as well. Um, I, I mean, one of the things from a scientific point of view is that, that they've been blowing this cold air into the stadiums, which in theory makes the... Um, the temperature is sort of uniform and instead of sometimes here it's 31, 32 degrees Celsius and the pitch side it's meant to be 22, 23, 24. But, but interestingly, I think a lot of the early games, the one o'clock and four o'clock kickoffs here where it's still very hot, they have been lower scoring and, and the pace has been slower. So I do wonder whether it's still um, hotter and more muggy than, than we think in that, those early games. So that's, that's something I've noticed. But yeah, the, the standard has varied widely, as you'd expect. And perhaps, I always think the crunch comes when it comes to the knockout games. That's when you get the real real test. How many great knockout games are we going to get? And I mean, my sort of first couple of, of World Cups were the 82 and 86 World Cup. And the 86 World Cup had some absolutely awful games, but it also mm. had some all-time classics. And, you know, let, let's see what, what the next three weeks brings us. Mm, mm. Who's your who's your pick? <laughs> I mean, it's it's very very boring and obvious, but th- three teams have absolutely stood out, and that's Brazil, Spain, and France. Um, the way the draw is shaping, it looks like it will be Brazil v Spain in in one quarter final, and probably England v France in another. Um, and, and so, therefore, you may get a team like a Portugal or Germany sneaking through on one. Um, you know, so Argentina who played so badly may yet find a path through. So that's quite interesting in itself that probably the two of the three best teams at the tournament are going to play in the last eight. Is there, um, I mean, I, I always think with football, the, the, the most amazing thing, it's a bit like the Olympic Games, is when you get into a scenario where you've got country people playing for their countries as opposed to their clubs. It's a bit like when you go to an athletics where you have you know, pace setters at a at a vault cluster versus a world championships where you don't. There's a there's a certain purity to the football and, and to the athletics. Is it is it the same in football in the, in the fact that you get a a different style of game because there's 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 no club and league contention in there. In other words, the style is different as a result of that. Um, I, I think historically you have had teams playing their national style. So historically England would, would, would play long ball, perhaps also teams like Japan uh, and South Korea would play sort of sort of tight, short passes, fast counter-attacks. But I think the game is becoming more universal. Um, so that, that there aren't so many differences in tactical approach. And 
you know, so that if you're if you're the weak team, you're almost certainly going to see them sit back and have a low block and try and hit on the counter attack. If you're the better team, um, that you're likely to um, you know to, to to play on the front foot and maybe you know press quite hard. What I think is quite interesting, um, I was chatting to another journalist who's spoken to Argentina's manager Solari, and he mentioned the fact that the lack of um, South American teams playing in the in the Nations League. Yes, let me say go. He's spoken to the Argentinian manager Solari, and historically, teams like Argentina and Brazil have played lots of friendlies against European teams. And this hasn't happened more recently because the Nations League has taken place instead. And, and he wondered whether Argentina might sort of struggle a little bit against teams that pressed heavily because they haven't had that much experience of it. And, and, and it was interesting, their first game, the Saudi Arabian side pressed very hard and, and, and Argentina lost. So that's a sort of a small diversion, yeah. um, mm. but it's quite interesting, I thought. Yeah, I mean, that's... I've always thought that as more and more players play in Europe, then the exposure to the one another becomes more regular, more frequent. Overlay on top of that data analytics, and that's the subject of our next interview in this podcast. And teams work out very quickly what works and what doesn't. And they cast aside what doesn't work, and everyone starts to play the same way. So that's an interesting question to put to the analysis expert, yeah. is whether that... Because part of the appeal is the Brazilian style against German efficiency versus the frenetic English style versus the Spanish high-speed passing game. And it is it is it is the element of the World Cup that I enjoy the most also. And it might be endangered. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as, a, as a non-football fan and somebody kind of watching from the outside, I, I, I had rather a cynical view of football after the 2010 World Cup. And that it was, a, it, it is, it was almost as if the standard of football and the skill of the players is at such a high level that in order to score a goal, you almost have to force a penalty or a, or a free kick. Is that, is there any truth in that? I mean, is, is there any substantiation to that? No, I mean, I think there are, there are a couple of things at play here. The first of all um, is that in the international game, teams have less time to work together and, and it's much easier to defend in football than attack. You have to work on intricate sorts of passing moves. You have to have that innate understanding between players. Well, when it comes to defence, stick a lot of men behind the ball. You know, you're well organised. So, therefore, in the international game, it often rewards teams that can that can sit back and keep it tight and maybe nick a goal on the break. And the second thing is just football, soccer is a low scoring game. When you have a low scoring sport, you inevitably increase randomness, luck. Um, mm. All of us as journalists, we, we do a thing called scoreboard journalist, journalism. And essentially, you look at the score and then you create a narrative around it. So a team could be awful, but they may nick a goal at the end and win 1-0. So it becomes a brave and, 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 and heroic performance. <laughs> back to the wall and then they win. Um, similarly, you know, it's, it, a team may get lucky and score with their first two shots. And, and, then, and then suddenly, again, the narrative is switched. So I think those two elements... Scoreboard journalism, the fact actually uh, uh, there's a lot of randomness in soccer, plus the fact um, international teams, they don't work as much, doesn't does lead to us um, what some of the things you, you've talked about there. Yeah. Oh, does yeah. that make sense, that last bit? Sorry, if not. Yeah, no, no, it does. I mean, in fact, there's, there's data analytics again on that. Uh, the best performing teams at World Cups have the best defence. So. Yeah. Um, more and the, the difference between the best and the next best in defense is larger than the best and the next best in attack. In other words, defense seemed to be weighted more heavily towards success. 
So, so by so by definition, if you're saying that there is a, a defensive strategies uh, have some benefit, does that mean that how do they if if you're a defensive team, how are you then scoring goals? Are you then looking for that free kick penalty scenario? Or are you just hoping for a draw and hoping not to lose and get mm-hmm. to that, that way? That will happen in the next week or two. <laughs> no, completely. Well, I think you will see um, sides that will be cautious. They will try and hit teams on a counter-attack. And it becomes a sort of... It, it becomes a very different game of, of, of cat and mouse. And, and, and what you really need often is... It's two teams that are prepared to go for it. And I, I hope a team that is on, plays on the front foot does you know, go far. I mean, Italy uh, at the Euros last year were a team that pressed hard. They 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 were a very aggressive side, and it was great to see them win. While a lot of other teams, like England as well, sat back. So Spain are a very um, forward-thinking side. France haven't been in the past, but they have been in this World Cup. You know, they're the sort of teams you you want for the good of the game because I don't think anyone yeah. wants that. I mean, I was there in South Africa and the number of games that were 0-0 zero, zero or 1-0, um, it was it was dull stuff. And um, mm. I just hope that we get um, you know, more enlightened play when we get to knockout stages. But I'm not holding my breath. I think Mike's also still traumatised by that Uruguay-Ghana match in the 2010 World Cup. Did you watch that one? I know <laughs> you blamed on this uh, podcast not to have watched much football. But no, yeah. in the quarterfinal, Ghana-Uruguay, Mm-hmm. which incidentally is being played again tomorrow for this for the benefit of listeners when sean makes predictions for teams that are out it's because we're recording this on a wednesday <laughs> and this podcast will go out a few days later so so any predictions might be <laughs> dated by a lot four days later but anyway I remember that ghana game and there was a handball and you, you might have covered that one sean handball on the line yeah, in the was, 94th was that, yeah Luis suarez he handled the ball and then then uh yes, still got through yeah, and Asama Gian missed the penalty kick. He's now an expert pundit on our coverage here, incidentally, for listeners. Yeah, and Uruguay won on penalties. It was yeah. very distasteful. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, we'll see. So, uh, what, what's it been like, obviously, back to Infantino's speech and FIFA's whole premises, taking it to the Arab world? You've covered it now in how many continents? Did you, did you do Asia? Four? Would that be four or five continents? No, I've I've done I've done th- three. I've done Germany. I've done um, South Africa, okay. and this one I was at the Tour de France in the other years um, when in the summer. So uh, I, I missed I missed twenty fourteen and eighteen. So um, what's the perception like of the sort of cultural position that football occupies in the country during a World Cup? Because obviously, having lived through twenty ten, South Africa was an unbelievable place for four weeks. Yeah, it, it's I know it sounds trite, but the the football tournament here changed the, the personality of this country. Yeah. Everyone was laid back and happy and joyous and celebratory it felt safer it was unbelievable because everyone was yeah. distracted by this event and i wondered what it's like in the arab world you know fifa's made a deal of this um, that's a really good question i think there are two things going on here um fifa have talked a lot about this world cup being a bridge between east and west um different nations with very different um attitudes and beliefs and sometimes i've seen that so i've been on the metro at two in the morning, come back for a game. And I saw an American group of American fans chatting to Saudi fans. Then some Mexicans come in singing and dancing. I, I looked over one side of the carriage. There was um, Portuguese fans with a cardboard cutout of, of um, Cristiano Ronaldo. And I did think actually that this is this great melting pot of, of fans and cultures. And um, But the other thing is it's only in very specific place, places. You could walk around much of Doha and you would not know a World Cup is going on. Hmm. But if you go to the souk, um, you know, you'll not be that. I was there the other night, there was 
thousands of Morocco fans singing and dancing and other teams from other countries hanging about. You go to the fan zone, it's the same. And, and you go also in the Metro. The Metro is this great melting pot. But almost elsewhere, you would not know that Qatar are playing. And I think it's it's about Qatar itself. A, it hasn't got that much of a footballing culture. But B, it's a country that's largely made up of guest and migrant workers. So I think there are only 200-odd thousand Qataris and over 2 million guest workers. So they're very, very keen. But actual most Qataris perhaps could take it or leave it. And we saw that in the very opening match when Qatar mm. played Ecuador. At half time, thousands of, of, of Qataris left because their, their team was losing and they thought, well, you know, on to something else. Beat the traffic home. Yeah. Mm. Uh, one, one other story that's come out is the first time we've seen an all-female refereeing team uh, refereeing the game between Costa Rica and Germany. And what's interesting about that, as I was saying to Ross um, before we started today, is that I can imagine that there would be some challenges just with the pace of the game. Have you seen or heard much about that? Has has, has been much of a story over there? Um, it's a good question. It's not yet. I mean, the, the referee were only announced. I'm I'm talking here on on, on Wednesday morning, uh, and the game is, is is not is not yet being played. It's been played on yeah. Thursday evening. So that's one to watch. Um, I think generally though, these referees are, are smart enough. Um, I grew up when. Referees back in England were often quite portly, bald. They didn't have to necessarily meet the best physical standards, and, and most of the time they just about kept up. So, um, you know, I think these 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 women officials are are some of the best in the world, and I don't think there'll be a huge problem. Yeah, I agree. I was saying to Mike in discussion is that a anticipation is a yeah. significant part of refereeing a match. B, the game isn't played from one goal line to the next. It's not like 100 meters in two, three seconds, kick a ball. You've got to cover that. It's it's now a much more compact game, so there's less space to cover. So, again, I'm thinking like a physiologist here. If the if the male-female difference in running speed, for instance, is 10%, and now you're going to get a situation where you can't cover all the distance you needed to, you're 10% short, it means you'll be away from an incident by six meters instead of five. That's not affecting the quality of the decision-making. Yeah. And third is they will have standards for fitness for referees. I know in world rugby, they do a bunch of repeat sprints. They do like a yo-yo intermittent or a shuttle run. They'll do the same thing for football. And I would imagine that the best refs are well above that level. And the best female refs are going to be also above that level. So there's a minimum standard you need and they'll be at that or above it. Yeah. So I don't think it's a problem. And I think it's, I think it's great. It'll be cool to see. Oh, by the time the podcast goes out, um, that game between Costa Rica and Germany would have been played. So for those of you watching the World Cup, you'll be able to see whether there's any um, fallout from that and how the game turned out. Sean Engel, mm -hmm. thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's lovely always to chat to you and incredible just to have your insights uh, from the ground. It's uh, really amazing. Enjoy the, enjoy the rest of the tournament. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Speak soon. So thanks again to Sean uh, for a very interesting uh, insight into what it's been like at the World Cup in Qatar. So our next uh, guest, a very special guest that we've got on uh, the podcast today, named by the name of Omar um, Chaudhry, who is the chief in, in, sorry, chief intelligence officer yeah. uh, for a company called 21st Group. Now, you can explain a little bit more what he does, but this is a guy who literally looks at the detail and the data of sport, in particular soccer, with the unbelievable amount of detail his knowledge around the sport the data points that he's looked at some of the stuff that he says in this interview that you're about to listen to is absolutely fascinating and it gives you a very good pricey not about 
just the World Cup that we're listening, uh, we're watching at the moment, but also about soccer in general around the world, how how it's going, how it's being played, and what it looks like going down the line. But he is fascinating, and I know that literally halfway through this, well, three quarters of the way through this podcast, I had to say to Ross, we need to we need to um, you know cut this short at some point because yeah. we could have probably spoken to him all day. I know that you could have. Yeah, and then I sort of held three fingers up. I said I got three <laughs> questions left. Seven questions later, we managed to let him go. <laughs> it was great, and just just for context, Sean Engel actually put me on to Omar because he's worked with him and and spoken to him in articles he's done in football so that's that was the connection but I, I think most listeners probably know the money ball concept you know Michael Lewis wrote a book about baseball and analytics and how they changed it that was then made into a movie with uh, Brad Pitt yeah um in the beginning Moneyball excited a lot of people and they said the same approach is going to work in sport and I think it's fair to say that it hasn't maybe in some sports quite delivered but what Omar's basically doing is trying to optimize the data-driven approach to decision making in sports so they work with teams they work on talent ID they work on recruitment strategies how does a team know who to buy where to buy where's value in the market how do you then evaluate the player and therefore if you can evaluate the player the team and how do you make predictions and so it must be a, an amazing space it's heavy it's heavy data driven i mean we don't touch on how that data is generated but i mean there are millions of data points that go into developing models and simulations like he talks about but i i just found it I mean, it was it was like peeling back. <laughs> it was like peeling back the you know you're like looking through you're looking through a window and it's frosted and all of a sudden it clarifies. That's what this was like. Yeah, just wonderful nuggets um, from uh, Omar Chaudhry. So here is our interview, and if you're a soccer fan, you're going to absolutely love this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So, well, welcome to the Science of Sports. I'm sure that you are in the throes of uh, a lot of happiness now because you're right in the middle of the biggest uh, event of your of your p- point of interest. T- tell us how it's been going for you and and the work that you do because it's really interesting to hear what you do and and why you do it and who do you do it for. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I suppose for the World Cup, obviously, it's it's interesting as a fan, given despite all the I suppose backdrop of everything else being a bit of a weird tournament in in many respects. Um, actually, the World Cup is a slightly different experience for us um, as a business. We we tend to work less on the performance side and more on the kind of fan um, side of things, which I'll, which I'll get into. But essentially, 21st Group as a, as a business is a sports intelligence agency. Uh, and we believe in sport that over the last 15 or 20 years or so, there's been somewhat of a neglect of, of the sporting products. There's been a big emphasis in, in the last um, 20 years or so on commercialization, marketing, packaging and selling of rights. Um, that has led to huge growth in, in I guess, the commercialization of sport and, and the amount of money that's in sport. But in some respects now, we think that there needs to be greater emphasis on the performance product side of, of sport, because that's ultimately what uh, whether you're a team, a competition organizer, a brand, whoever you are involved in, in in sport, should be caring about the long term because that's going to drive the long term health of 
of um from a financial perspective of, of your sport uh, and so we kind of operate on the sporting products if you like on the performance side to helping teams and, and athletes win on the competition side helping competition organizers uh, make sure the tournament is kind of exciting there's jeopardy um for, for fans uh, and on on the fan side making sure that fans actually care about uh, the competition and the way that we do that particularly on that last pillar is around performance data because increasingly fans have an interest in I guess just understanding and celebrating how good these athletes are like you see them in the World Cup just how good these players are and, and increasingly you're seeing data as a means to, to kind of celebrate that um, so that's that's us um, in a nutshell and, and you know during the World Cup we're doing a fair bit of content with some of our partners around celebrating all the different for example we're recording here after um senegal versus uh, ecuador which was just a crazy back and forth who's going to qualify type game and and that's the type of content that we'd be providing for for different brands and broadcasters and fans hmm. well without giving away too much your your business intelligence i mean who are your clients in other words who pays for the service yeah, so I guess if I go across the different um, pillars, what we do on, on the kind of performance um, side of things, uh, it's Premier League clubs, clubs across Europe in the Champions League. So Tottenham Hotspur, a big client of ours that we work uh, closely with. Uh, on the competition side, uh, it's a number of different leagues around the world, likes of uh, Premier League, MLS, uh, leagues out in, in Europe as well, continental Europe. Uh, on the fan side, uh, working with brands such as Aon, uh, broadcasters such as Sky Sports. Uh, and then on the investment side, which is kind of a, a fourth aspect of what we do, working with potential investors in, in sport um, who, who are looking to either buy clubs or leagues, a range of kind of private equity groups or, or high net worth individuals who are looking to invest in sport. So it's a pretty diverse set of, of clients. Um, but I guess the key thing that connects them all is that we develop IP around data that could be service service those in different ways. So a good example is if we have expertise in projecting who is going to win the league or win a competition or the probability of finishing in the Champions League places, that's useful for a club because it helps them plan their windows. It's useful for a competition because they can understand, well, if we're going to change the format in a particular way, how does that how does that influence who might qualify for the top four? It's interesting for fans, just as content um, is, is interesting, kind of understanding the jeopardy of a competition. And it's interesting for investors because they need to understand, well, if I'm going to be buying this club, what are the long-term odds of, of finishing in the Champions League as an example? So mm. even though it's quite diverse, all joined up through through data. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. So, I mean, looking, I mean, not to focus specifically on the World Cup, because obviously this podcast is listened to throughout the year. What are, what are the current trends around football as a sport? In other words, tactically, um, we were talking um, with uh, Sean Engel from The Guardian just be before we chatted to you a little bit about how the World Cup, how players um, and teams become defensive and how defensive can become a strategy. Um, and then how do you, you know, force penalties and yellow cards mm. and that sort of thing? Can you give us an idea of the sort of trends around the the, the the tactics of the game at the moment that you could sort of say this is the this is the game in 2022? Yeah, good question. So I, I think international football is, is very different to club football um, for a couple of reasons. So firstly, it is more defensive um, because essentially teams have less time to work, uh, coaches have less time to work with their players. Uh, mm. And essentially what you tend to see is that particularly in modern football, teams that have more money, more resources, uh, the best coaches and so on, often end up being more attacking teams because it is harder to build successful, cohesive attacking units. It's, it's a bit 
I hate to say easier, but but it's perhaps a little bit more straightforward to build more cohesive defensive units. And in the short period of time, particularly with this World Cup, they only had essentially a week in the lead up to a tournament to work with the players. I think that's something that you, you very much tend to see. Um, so that's why I think international football tends to be a bit more defensive. You also tend to see, if you look at the history of major tournaments, teams that are defensively better tend to be more successful, uh, tend to be more successful that, than those that are kind of more uh, open and, and attacking. Uh, yeah. So, you know, th- there's a lot of clamour uh, in the English press for playing all these attacking talents, but actually, you know, starting from, you know, a, a basis of not conceding goals is actually not a bad one. But what's interesting, how that contrasts to the club game is that the club game has become very much more attacking over the last 15 years or so. Um, if you go back to, uh, call it kind of the mid-noughties, maybe late noughties, the game was relatively defensive goals per game in, in the Champions League, for example. Obviously, the elite competition was was hovering around kind of 2.5, 2.7. Nowadays, in the Champions League, you I think the average goals per game is over three or, or around three, which is a reflection, I think, of a, of a couple of things. Um, firstly, I guess the likes of Spain being very successful um, and Barcelona being very successful under Pep Guardiola, the emergence of, of coaches like Jurgen Klopp. And this sense, I think, increasingly of football being entertainment rather yeah. than just um, sport, um, which um, kind of marries up with you know the commercialization of sport and so on. It's all, it's all kind of wrapped up together. Um, and I think there are there is increasing pressure from fans now to for teams to play attacking, um, exciting football, rather than if you think back to Mourinho and Benitez and those games in, in the mid-noughties, I think fans, if they looked at those games now, they go, I'm, I'm not watching that, I'm going to watch something else. So the club game has moved towards that and that has accelerated investment in very expensive players and expensive attacking talent in particular. Yeah, there's isn't there a saying in, in US sports, attack wins matches and defense wins championships or something like that, one of those overused cliches or, or defense, as they might say? Yeah, it's... Um, it's slightly less true in football, I think. Um, and, and the importance of attack and defence varies depending on where you are in the league. But, yeah. um, but in the World Cup, I think that is true to a degree. I remember it's not unique to uh, football because I know a certain rugby coach who many fans will have seen on social media controversies recently once told me, if I'm coaching a team and I can teach everyone, to, I can teach everyone to defend because it's an instruction. Whereas if I must teach them how to attack, it's creativity and they have to make their own decisions. And it's far easier for me to teach them how to defend than attack. So I think it's actually a universal principle yeah. that, you're, that you're talking about there. So. Yeah, interesting though. Interesting to see how, how the trend has, has, has changed, as you say, the last 10, 15 years. And obviously that's good for the game at, at a club level, but maybe not at an international level, yeah. Yeah, I think it provides a bit of contrast between club and international football. That there's, I mean, we might get into this, but in club football, the kind of there's few teams that do very well now. There's more competitive imbalance than than there ever was. Um, And you know, as clubs spend more money on attacking players, that that might um, kind of skew it. But international football, you look at this tournament, right? And the no team is more than thirty percent likely to win it. Brazil probably the favourites in our model, about twenty seven percent. But you've got a whole host of teams around kind of eight to 12% call it. And that's that's exciting. We're sitting here before the second round. We really don't know who's going to win it. And that's not always the case in club football. Let's let's explore that a little bit because um, I read your, your pre-tournament analysis and listened to a podcast and uh, I may have the figures wrong, but I think you had Brazil pre-tournament at 22%. Germany was second favourites at 12% probability. And then you had a host of teams at between 10 and 11 who included England, Sp- no, not Spain, England, France, Argentina, You've just said Brazil 27, so they've gone up. They've gone up, yeah. They've, um, well, I guess the fact that they're through the guaranteed, yeah. um, going through to the next 
next stage is obviously a big part of it. Uh, Argentina knocked down. Obviously, they, they, we don't know if they're going to make it. We'll right. find out today as we're, we're recording. Um, but yeah, it, not too much has changed. Obviously, Spain had bumped up a bit, or, or having performed so well, particularly in the first game, or the Germany game suggested you know pretty evenly matched those two teams. Mm. So not it's not it's been a World Cup of surprises in some respects. Some of the results have been surprising, but it also looks like apart from maybe Belgium, who we didn't really have as one of the favourites, um, you know, generally the kind of bigger teams are going to make it through. Yeah, I want to explore two two things about that. One is how it's developed, your method, in other words. And I mean, I know that it's your own proprietary method and so forth, but how do you arrive at a figure of 22% be pre-tournament for Brazil? Obviously, it mm. includes an analysis of who they'll play, how likely they are to get out of the group, then play in 16, 8, quarter, semi-final and final, but also some analysis of the squad, the depth they have, and the quality of the players. And so it's, it involves looking at Brazil in isolation and then the, the, the what do you call it, almost the, the, the conflicts they'll face directly, yeah. the specific challenges, the context. Um, where does the data come from and, and how do you eventually arrive at that 22% number? Yeah, so I suppose the basis of it all is, is data. Um, we've got a team of data scientists here who uh, look, at, look at all the numbers and try and build models to help ultimately predict things because in everything that we do we're trying to predict things if you can predict things better then you can make better decisions off, off the back of it so to start with i suppose understanding teams and, and the trouble with international football is i think an, a, a team probably plays a dozen maybe between 12 and 20 games in a year so it's not that many matches in a year but we have a model that essentially is a machine learning model that looks at all the results in international football and tries to work out who who the better and weaker teams are um, and even though um, Brazil may not play, um, I, I don't know, a, a team in Asia that often. They might play a European team that plays a, a an African team that might play an Asian team, and it, it gives you a kind of mapping of, of the relative qualities of of different teams across across the world. Um, so that gives us a kind of baseline understanding. And Brazil are rated very good. If you look at their qualifying results, for example, I think they might have gone unbeaten in qualifying, hardly conceded any goals, and so we get essentially an attack and defense rating. Um, for them based mm. um, based on those results and, and also you know as lower weighting on, on friendlies for example but as I say there, there aren't that many games so you can't draw too many conclusions we also know that teams rotate during qualifiers when England play San Marino they're not necessarily playing their strongest team or, or, or whatever so we also account for players um, and the way that we evaluate players um, is interesting and it, it, we may get onto this as well in terms of the challenges of using data to understand performance yeah. in football. But, but if you if you look to you know what we kind of consider as data on players, when you think of all the tackles, passes, shots, data that you see um, you know, on Sky Sports or whatever um, you know, that's published, it can be actually quite hard to understand the context of some of those numbers. You know, if, if someone's making 60 passes a game for a mid-table team in Poland, like is that good? Is that bad? Like, is that mm. better than someone doing 30 in England? Uh, and that is challenging because there aren't that many player movements. You're not having that many players move from Poland to England each year. So it, it can be quite complicated to try and work out from that kind of what we call bottom-up data to work out who who the good and, and bad players are. Um, so we, we uh, take what we call a, a kind of top-down approach, which is essentially to look firstly at the quality of teams in world football. Um, so best teams in world football, like sort of Bayern Munich and Real Madrid and Man City and Liverpool and so on. So we know that better players will generally gravitate towards better teams. There's inefficiency in the transfer market, but it's not totally inefficient that you'll have a world-class player playing in, in the championship in England, for example. 
Uh, and we also know that the better players will play more often. So someone like Joshua Kimmich or someone like Erling Haaland, they're playing week in, week out for the best teams in world football. They must be good players. Uh, and uh, and I, I think any kind of any football fan would, would tell you that as well. Uh, and so you essentially what you're trying to do is evaluate the, the players who are contributing, the level of contribution to their teams, accounting for the level of teams that they play for. Mm, and again, mm. we've got a machine learning model that does this. And essentially you rank the players in world football through this methodology so not looking at tackles passes shots but really looking at the kind of quality of teams they play for their contribution in terms of minutes in terms of goals and assists how good the defense and attack is of those teams you actually end up with a ranking of players that pretty much passes the eye test which is you know a, a reasonably good test of, of anything in sport so the likes of holland mbappe um messi and and others are always kind of Lewandowski all towards the top of the rankings yeah that enables us to evaluate kind of who the good players are. And then when it gets international teams, we can go, okay, well, who have Brazil used over the last 12, 24 months? How good is their quality of starting 11? Which players may not have played um, because of injury or whatever, but actually in the squad. Uh, and so it's a pretty, appreciate it's a long-winded answer, but that gets us to kind of an overall view of how good Brazil, Spain, whoever else are. And then yeah. to calculate tournament probabilities, we essentially simulate it. So we look at Brazil versus uh, Serbia. We estimate that Brazil have a call it 60% chance of winning Serbia, I don't know, 15% chance of winning the rest of the draw, simulate that game thousands and thousands of times, you get kind of a distribution of different outcomes and you can simulate the whole tournament out to understand how often Brazil win the competition. So what do the thousand simulations change? I mean, what's different in simulation three versus simulation 762? Why would well, it ever be different? So in simulation three, because there's that 15% chance Serbia win, it might be that it's one of those 15% of occasions that Serbia win the game. And actually in the same group, maybe Cameroon beat Switzerland and, and Brazil yeah. also lose to, to Switzerland and suddenly Brazil are crashing out the tournament. That's very unlikely because it's essentially is randomized so it's weighted towards the different probabilities um so it's unlikely that would happen loads and loads of times and when you do it thousands of times you, you essentially get a good sense of all the range of possibilities that could happen mm. so just back to the, the the analysis if i'm understanding correctly your approach is almost to let the market decide it's almost like a darwinian whoever's the fittest survives and then emerges at the top almost a, a little bit yeah and i think where where you then kind of exploit it perhaps as a club is where people don't necessarily appreciate the quality of individual teams. Um, so for example, um, there'll be teams in, uh, well, I'll give you, I'll give you a good example. We work with the, the Canadian premier league um, who are a league that was just founded in, in 2019. Um, they uh, wanted to bring in kind of high quality, young, good international players. But if you're the Canadian Premier League, you have no real sense of how good you are because you're not playing, you're playing Canadian cup matches against some of the MLS teams. So you get a, a relative sense of how good you are relative to MLS, but you're not playing teams from across Europe or teams from across Africa. Mm. Um, but you can begin to understand again through what we call our World Super League ratings, which is essentially maps the quality of teams across different countries and continents. We can begin to understand, well, actually, a uh, an average Canadian Premier League team is comparable to a kind of League Two, a National League team here in here in England. They're comparable to, I don't know, a second division team in Croatia, comparable to a, a second division team in, um, in Bulgaria or, or whatever. And that enables you then to go, OK, well, which markets are there that are cheaper? So paying paying players less 
um, but of comparable quality um, to the Canadian Premier League and therefore probably have players that are comparable quality to Canadian Premier League players or potentially better and they could come in and improve the league. So, um, yeah, in in Canada, there there are players that move from Peru, from players from New Zealand, players that move from Estonia, uh, all of whom have done done well because we've essentially helped evaluate what the relative quality of um, of those leagues are compared yeah. to Canada. I've got I've got one gagging question. I mean, with all that data, who, who is the best player in the world then? Well, right, <laughs> I, right now, and, I think and I have got, a similar question based on the data. I think we've got um, Erling Haaland number one. I have to double check, uh, and then Lewandowski has been number one for a period of time as well in our in our model. So it's it's pretty pretty close run thing. But I mean, for for years it was quite boring looking at the rankings because it was just messy on top in our in our rankings. Yeah. Yeah. Did the would the Ballon d'Or winners have changed over the last twenty years if they'd used this approach as opposed to the subjective votes? Do you know? There, there, there'd have been a couple. I think um, someone like. Uh, Luka Modric, who I think won it after 2018. Yeah. Obviously, a very, very good player, but didn't like for and had a great World Cup with Croatia. But World Cups are seven matches, you know, they're, they're relatively short knockout tournaments. Whereas a league season doing it consistently over 50, 60 games means that you tend to come out higher in our model if you're playing loads of games for the, for the top mm. teams in the world. Sticking on the subject of specific players at this at this World Cup, obviously being in the window it's in where it's interrupting a season as opposed to coming two, three weeks after a season, there's a trade-off because you'll have potentially more injuries coming in, but you'll have fewer fatigue players. So you've got fresher, more likely to be injured players. Who is the player or group of players who most hurt their team's chances when they get injured? Uh, Yes. So we looked at this pre-tournament. I think it was um, Son for Korea, who he's just uh, obviously a, Phenomenal player. I think we've got him in the top 20, 30 players in the, in the world. Um, and the rest of the Korean teams is is not bad. In fact, I mean, none of the teams of the tournament are particularly bad, but you know, that that delta is so big. Sadia Mane was was obviously another big loss mm. for, for Senegal. But I think the main thing to note is that the losing a player, as we've seen with, with Senegal, doesn't have to be the end of the world. Um no. an individual player has less of an impact than you know you would think basically any one player. Um, and, and there's a there's a kind of a thought experiment we use that illustrates this. So if you take the Premier League, for example, and you take a title winner winning, say, 90 points um, in a season, and then you take a relegated team, which is earning about, say, 35 points in a season, that's a 55-point gap between title winning team and, and relegation level team. 55 points spread over 11 players means that if you systematically took one player out of the title winning team and replace them with a relegation level player on average to be worth about five points over the course of a season, which isn't a huge amount, right? Over, over kind of 90 mm. points. It's not, it's not a massive difference. Um, you know, again, on a per game basis, you're talking about, was it 0.1, 0.2 points um, per game? So it's not enormous. And then you transpose that into a world cup context, you know, 0.1, 0.2 points per game. That's, you know, the difference of less than a point over the course of three games. So yes, Senegal would love to have Sadio Mane at the World Cup. They may have even won the group with him, but, you know, it's not the end of the world. They still were able to get through. And, and actually, yeah. I think when we do the modelling, teams' chance of progression for the last 16 only tend to get hit by kind of five, seven, eight percentage points. So it's not huge. Um, and, you know, I always laugh, uh, we're sitting here with a lot of England fans wanting Phil Foden to play more or, or, or whatever. And it's, Yes, he might make an impact, but he's not going to turn England into World Cup winners overnight. It's you know these are all kind of very marginal differences that any individual player can make. 
Well, it's the, it's the selling point of sport is my opinion is going to transform my team. If the coach just yeah. listened to me, you see this, yeah. all sports, I mean, they get drunk on superstars. I think in some, am I right in saying that in basketball, the contribution of each player is, is high because the teams are smaller and because of the way the game is played, you can score a third of your team's points. Yes, uh, I think that's so, absolutely right. And I know um, I've heard American ownerships that have been in English football that have um, had experience in the NBA and, and have thought that the kind of superstar model can translate into football, but it just doesn't do as well because as you say, mm. it's 11, 11 players. Any one players make makes a smaller difference than they do in basketball. Yeah, they still get drunk on superstars there because it sells, I suppose. So, yeah, that's that's always fascinating to me. We discussed this in our previous podcast is that what's always interesting about football to me is that you have a game where essentially in most sports, the best team will win based on whatever, whereas your job is particularly tough because in football, Mm -hmm. the best team doesn't always necessarily win because there is a vast, there is a, a very big part of it that's involves a bit of luck and and a little bit of just being in the in a, in a moment or a nice touch at some point i mean yeah it, exactly is it is it the hardest of all the of all the sports that you do is football the hardest in terms of predicting uh yes um in the sense that football's the lowest scoring sport that there is right um so on average say 2.7 to win eight goals per game in, in major leagues and and what that means as you say is that luck plays a kind of bigger role in it and often when people think of luck it's like our oh, referee's decision or you know player slipping or whatever but actually it's more um it's more subtle than that in some ways um if you if you take any single shot on goal that a player takes they normally have to hit the ball in a really kind of small point on the ball in order for it to find the corner of the net in order to go in. And that isn't necessarily the most repeatable skill. One of the things we find in football is that it's finishing in particular is, is can be quite a random skill that you know sometimes players go on hot streaks and, and cold streaks. Um, it, it's harder to it makes it harder to predict in the sense that for any given game, a team is you know unlikely to be a massive favorite. So in the World Cup, the vast majority of favourites in a game probably have close to 50% chance of, of winning, you know, maybe a 30% chance of drawing, 20% chance of, of losing. And so what that means is that you get quite a wide distribution of possible outcomes and to the point we're making earlier, you know, Brazil, outstanding team, still only have a 25, 30% chance of, of winning the tournament. Um, so it, it is unpredictable. It's also the thing that makes football, I think, so popular because you can sit and watch any game and not really know what the outcome is going to be. And this may be going off on a bit of a tangent, but a lot of people have looked to T20 cricket and gone, um, you know, can we find our own version of T20 cricket? It's become such a popular sport. You know, the media rights now, average IPL deal, average game is comparable to the Premier League, for example, and not far off NFL. And I think people misunderstand what makes T20 cricket so attractive. They think it's the sixes and the wickets and the fireworks and so on. Actually, it's the unpredictability of it. Like any given T20 game, typically it's 50-50 chance of any team winning at international level or even kind of domestic level. Mm-hmm. And and but that's what football's done for for kind of over a century. It's had this kind of unpredictable nature. And, and actually, if you're another sport that's trying to replicate the success of football and, and get the product right, I think unpredictability is fundamental to it. And you look at sports like early, you know, early rounds of Grand Slams and tennis, they're, they're boring because you just know who's going to win. There's no, there's no jeopardy involved. You look at lots of other sports where, you know, 
the same team always wins or you have this kind of uh, you go into any given game and, and you can kind of know what what the outcome is going to be that's the thing that makes football so popular yeah. it's just, mm. you just don't know what's going to happen the strange thing for me is that i actually it goes against we talked about in, this, in the previous podcast is that it goes against what I think the principles of sport is. As much as I agree with you, <laughs> I find that frustrating that the, not the best team wins because, in my opinion, the best team or person should win the game. But then, but you know, when, so- <laughs> isn't isn't one of your isn't one of your principles in sports unpredictability then? No, because I think if you're the best runner in a marathon, you're going to win. So why do you watch the race? Because it's it's watching the race, and not everybody is there's not always a clear favorite. But I mean, I take what Omar's saying is yeah. that the unpredictability. But actually, that's the one thing that actually puts me off against football. And I guess to some extent, you know, I'm I'm potentially in the minority there. It's know? interesting though because it does lead to the the, the concept of certainty. And and in my impression, Omar, you can tell me if this is wrong or right, is that Leicester winning the Premiership a few years back aside. Uh, the outcome of most of the big European leagues is pretty decided over the course of the season among two to three teams. And so yeah. is that a is that a problem from you're sitting there in the interface between commercial fan and performance? Is that a is that an issue for the sport? Is actually that football's become we've talked a lot about game to game unpredictability, but over a longer period it's too predictable. Yes, so you're absolutely right. This, I think, this is the big kind of existential issue within um, European football at the moment is that leagues have become predictable, and it's driven by. It's, I, I would say football has a natural unpredictability, but that natural unpredictability can be undermined by financial inequality, which is mm. um, what is what has happened over twenty years, and and it's been that financial inequality has been to a certain degree a natural process. If you're Man United, you know, you're, you're winning lots. If you're winning lots, you naturally attract fans. If you attract fans, you attract sponsors, you attract more broadcast money and so on. And that has a kind of self-fulfilling cycle. Um, so you can understand why it's happened. Um, and now the battle for, for European leagues is is how do you redistribute money if you can, um, which, which is always challenging? Or how do you, uh, you know, one of the solutions, it was a Super League breakaway because if you can kind of take the top, 15, 20 wealthiest clubs, they're all kind of have similar-ish levels of wealth. Can Maybe that's a more competitive environment than they would be in their own domestic leagues. Obviously, that's been shot down for very good reasons, I think. Uh, or do you change formats? And that's actually what a lot of European leagues are exploring at the moment. So the number of European leagues that are moving more to the US model of, of playoffs, um, not necessarily knockout playoffs, but um, kind of postseason rounds where you play like another set of round robins again between the top teams. So mm. in Denmark, that's done. Belgium, that's done. Um, uh, I think Poland is, is done as well as a few other leagues that, that do that. You can understand why the playoffs are a very successful model in, in US sports. Um, they introduce that great unpredictability, um, you know, because in any given game, as you say, Ross, in game to game, you have that unpredictability. The question is whether that rails up against European culture of, of sport and to what extent fans really engage with, with playoff formats. So there's a lot to kind of unpick there. Um, but it, it, I go back to the original question, it is an existential issue, I think, for European football, and, and it shouldn't be complacent about its position in, in world sport. But don't you don't playoffs reduce jeopardy to some degree? Because actually compared to a league, of course, they don't because they're knockout games. But if I think of baseball and basketball, we have best of seven. I mean, that that actually yeah. and that's the reason that the NFL, I think, is so valuable is that they play straight knockouts in the playoffs and you get very few repeat winners. 
and it's highly unpredictable. It's baseball and basketball. I get the impression because you got you're giving the team seven, well, giving them three losses every seven games, and they can still win the thing. Yeah, I think that is um, it's an important point. I think obviously the American sports also engineer competitive balance through draft systems and mm. uh, and so on. Um, but that yeah, if in football you can't really have best of seven series, it's you know because of the breaks you need between games. Um, you know, at least three four days between games, particularly if you're going to be playing seven games and needs to be extended. You can't really have best of seven series. You might have you know. At most, what we've seen is, is two-legged ties, right? Which which is mm. pretty commonplace in, in football, which still has a level of unpredictability. The threat is obviously undermining jeopardy in the regular season, which um, which does happen in, in US sports as well, where you get quite a few dead rubbers because you know who's going to make the playoffs, which is where, again, it becomes important to have incentives for seedings and, and all this kind of stuff. But mm. it's all, all in the design of competitions. And I think perhaps some people might be surprised at how sophisticated some of the modelling that now goes into design of competitions to understand how many dead rubbers might I expect, how many, how likely is it that the fourth best team or the eighth best team wins the competition? You know, if you take the UEFA Champions League, which is undergoing reform uh, in a couple of years' time, change of format, there would have been a lot of uh, modelling that went into understanding, actually, is this new, what they call Swiss-style group stage going to be interesting for fans? And from personal level, I think it will be. Um, just um, I want to come back and then maybe leave this one. The principle that Mike raised about unpredictability. I suppose so. So why do I watch the Tour de France and the New York Marathon or any other event, not football, tennis, Grand Slam finals? Because I don't actually know who's better until the result tells me. Right? Would you agree? I mean, I don't yeah. know who's better today, Pogaccio or Jonas Vinegar. I didn't know that until Hauptkamp told me who the better cyclist yes. was. Um, and the thing is, in the World Cup, as we move closer and closer to the last eight and so on, that becomes more and more true. In the group stages, it's not. We know Argentina's better than Saudi Arabia, but they got beaten by them. So is that is that the distinction? I mean, because I think that's great. I think that result's tremendous. As much as I want Argentina to make it to the finals, but still, I think it's don't you or, or no? Again, I, I'll stick to what I was saying right at the start. I think it's the fact that you that you you have a team. And I always find this uh, maybe a good example is what happened with the, with the United States and, and Iran. You know, you've got two countries from a socioeconomic perspective that come from a completely different space. On paper, there's no way that an Iran should be taking on and beating a country like the United States in football, but yet they can. But in terms of their perceived strength, you would pick United States 100% of the time. Oh. But there's no, pred- yeah. no way of predicting that. I think there's I, a couple- I, I find that frustrating. <laughs> I think there's a I think there's a couple of things. There's there's the format or the rules of the sport producing genuine uncertainty, um, it just or, or kind of natural uncertainty. And then there's, I guess, um, you know, how or, or kind of working out who the better team is at any given point in time. For what it's worth, like Iran, it, we gave Iran a chance yesterday, not because of the format of football, but actually Iran a pretty decent team. Like they're. Their striker Teremi playing for Porto, we rate as one of the kind of, again top forty players in, in world football. He's from banging goals. So he's that genuinely good footballers, right? Um, and the format of the sport only heightens the kind of mm. um, sense. I think mm. that there's always a question of on on the day if I don't know a team goes and is incredible, like creates loads of chances is incredibly wasteful and ends up losing the game because the other team goes up and score, like a bit like Saudi did against, against Argentina. Like, is that, do you blame Argentina for playing 
badly and wasting all those chances or and you say Saudi were the better team because they converted their chances or do you just accept that's kind of unpredictability of football I think there's there's kind of yeah different fans have a different view on it but yeah I'm with you yeah. Ross like I, I watch sport because uh, <laughs> I'll sit down and watch sport because it's unpredictable and and actually an interesting thing on on women's football at the moment domestic women's football is incredibly predictable like there's so many one-sided games because so much so vast differences in the amount of investment that yeah. owners have put into their teams that's made the sport that's, uninteresting for a period of time that's really interesting because women's rugby is the same there are four teams and everyone in the world who was following women's rugby could have predicted who'd make those semi-finals the only question was who'd play who because of the format of the competition but you knew who the top four were and it's a threat to their game because if the next three world cups are the same then what's mm. this incentive from five down to 16 to even invest so that's that's a that's a fair point. You mentioned something I wanted to explore with you. You, you mentioned creates a lot of chances. There's a concept of expected goals. I don't know whether you're from, obviously you're familiar with them. Sorry, but are you a fan? Uh, yes. So uh, it's I mean expected goals has been around now. It's probably coming up to its kind of tenth anniversary in terms of like mm. there was a famous kind of blog published on it um, by by an opt analyst Sam Green and a number of years ago that kind of set um, set it going as as a thing. It was. Um, I, I expected goals is kind of, um, I suppose, misunderstood in many ways. For me, the, the single most important thing for expect, um, to understand about expected goals is it tells you essentially if you've been lucky or unlucky and yeah. therefore whether you're likely to get better or naturally get better or worse in the long term. Um, so if you're a team in particular, if you've kind of been creating lots of good chances and not conceding many good chances, but you haven't been winning games, Odds are, if you keep going like that, which expected goals indicates he will do, means that in the long term you'll you'll probably do better. Um, yeah, your so, results will turn around. Yeah, yeah. So just for the for the for the listeners who aren't familiar, because yes, it is a t- decade old now, but expected goals it's not a prediction; it's a it's a analysis. It's retrospective, right? Yeah, exactly. So maybe yeah. you can maybe you're you saying it's a it's a philosophy. No, it's a it's a it's an analysis outcome where right. after a game, or in fact during a game, the chances created by a team are ranked on a as a probability. So for instance, a, and and I look, it's not my area, so I actually want to hand over as quickly as I can here to the expert. But for instance, a penalty has a probability of being scored. A shot from an acute angle and 30 meters out has a probability of being scored, which is way lower. And when you add up all the chances and their probability of being scored, it gives you an expected goal. So have, I, have I butchered that or am I more? No, that's spot on. Yeah. So, you know, historically, when you'd see stats on screen, it'd be this team had five shots, this team had 10 shots. Uh, and the team had many, as many shots on target, but it didn't account for the, the quality of those chances, basically. Mm. And Ross is absolutely right. Using uh, different models, you can assess the underlying probability of scoring from any given chance, given the location, angle, pressure on the ball, header, volley, whatever it was. Uh, and that gives you a number. So as you say, a penalty, roughly about 75% chance of being scored. Uh, if you're one-on-one with a goalkeeper through and on goal, it might be a kind of 30, 40% chance of being scored. If you're trying to shoot from 30 yards, it might be 2% chance of being, being scored. Mm. Uh, and if you sum those up over the course of a game, you get these expected goals over the course of a game number. So you might, you'll often see, I don't know, England uh, 2.1, Wales 0.5 or something like that, which would give kind of almost like an expected score line for the game. Yeah. Uh, and based on that, um, you might say, well, England would win this game 70% of the time, based on the chances that were created by both teams, England would win it 70% of the time, would lose it, uh, I don't know, uh, draw it 20% of the time and lose it, um, wherever else, um, 10% does it, of the time. Does that, does that make sense, yeah. the concept? So if I win two penalties and have one one-on-one with a keeper, based on what I've just heard, I've got a 1.8 would be my expected goal. Maybe the score's nil-nil. 
mm. in which case I'm underperforming fairly significantly relative to expected goals. So what I wanted to ask you now in the context of our previous conversation is how often does the team with fewer expected goals win the game? Do we, do we know that number? Uh, yeah. So that would be the upset. Yeah. So it's roughly in the region of think about 30%, 30 to 40%, um, which, is, okay. which is pretty high, right? Um, so it also yeah. depends on, on the margin of, of difference in expected goals in a game. But yes, teams will regularly win matches when they don't deserve to. Um, just, or deserve to based on chance of quality. Crazy. Just out of interest, and I mean, I feel like I'm now I'm talking. This is fun. Is what off the top of your head? What's the most outrageous expected goals discrepancy you ever saw, where the team, <laughs> where the team should have won and lost it? Like yeah. six six one expected goals, and they lost one nil. Yeah, so you tend to see um, a lot of kind of often nil-nil draws where a team might have absolutely battered the opposition. So I've seen occasions where a team might have like kind of five or pushing six expected goals and end up drawing nil nil because the other team just sat back and they keep had an unbelievable day they might have been incredibly mm. wasteful uh, in terms of wins i mean even even the uh, saudi game wasn't you know it was, was pretty spectacular i think the the two saudi goals were unbelievable finishes they, they hit the you know precise corner of the net that you needed to <laughs> in order to to get those two goals i think they had three shots in total two on target um, and that would have been, I think we gave them like a 2% chance of winning that game based on the chances created. And you do get occasions where teams would have like a, a one or even less than 1% chance because that, that's probability, right? If, if there's a 1% yeah. chance, it will happen one out of 100 times. That's the kind of beauty of, of numbers, I suppose. But, yeah. um, you know, you, you do see yeah, occasions where teams will create three or four to 0.1 expected goals and end up losing. And that's kind of, the again, maybe not for you, Mike, but, but the fun of it. <laughs> <laughs> is the is the um is the expected goal stat one of the more useful i mean if you if you if i'm a coach now listening to this and i'm saying and in fact i asked our patreon followers to submit their questions and chris Wiffen said there's so much data now and so many different approaches to it that it's confusing which data is actually valuable and informative and which can be dismissed as background noise I and mean, where, where would you land on that one is expected goals noise or is it informative and what other informative ones are there yeah, so it's informative in the right context. Again, stats can always be um, abused and, and not used in the right context. So for, for us and the work that we do, it's informative in helping particularly management teams and ownership groups understand often whether to change their coach. So we there's a Premier League club that um, we worked with and uh, we still do, and they uh, receive an, an SMS at full time, which tells them the expected goals from a game. And it tells them how likely they were to essentially win that game or, or lose that game based on the chances that they created. And they were going through a, a tough run of, of results. So they're consistently dropping points, losing games, drawing games. Uh, but the, the chairman had a sense that, you know, actually we're, we're playing quite well here. I, c I can't understand why we're losing games. And he was getting these SMSs through and it was showing that, yeah, in this game, you create better chances, we end up losing. In this game, you create a better chance, you end up losing. And that can happen. You know, someone somewhere is going to be getting unlucky consistently game after game. If if we all started tossing coins, one of us would throw kind yeah. of three, four tails, um, five tails in a, in a row, right? Uh, and so the numbers assured him that actually the team was playing quite well and therefore he shouldn't necessarily change the coach because if he did, results probably would have improved anyway under the existing coach and they ended up doing so. Um, and you would have gone through this whole upheaval of, of change um, for, for no reason, really. And, and, you know, that upheaval is costly. Um, you know, you've got to pay severance, you've got to get a new coach in, you're probably going to demand money in the transfer window, all, all this kind of stuff. So 
expected goals for me is is most useful in in that context and kind of mm. save the club the most hassle. Um, and so the, before before you go on, sorry, is this also related to expected no, goals? No, go on, go on. I wanted to ask you on that is. The whole expected goals model is based on analysis of literally thousands, tens of thousands of goals. And where was the chance? How often is it scored? In other words, penalty from that spot, by definition, 75%. Do the, I mean, the best strikers in the world then you would expect would exceed expected goals on a regular basis, but they don't. They don't, yeah. The, the best strikers in the world, what differentiates them is their ability to consistently get into good scoring positions. So it's to, it's to make XG, not to convert XG. Exactly. That's exactly right. So yeah. if you, and, and it's, it actually, when you appreciate that, it actually changes the whole way you watch football mm, in some yeah. ways because it, it makes yeah. you realize that, again, uh, Phil Foden last night um, for, for, for England, the thing that differentiated him in his, his goal scoring was the fact that he knew to make that run to the far post and had the ability to kind of create the space to get into that that position. It wasn't the finish itself, which was relatively straightforward. And Marcus Rashford, um, his his second goal, his ability to find the angle for the shot and put it away rather than the actual finish itself. And and that is interesting. And as a kind of rough split, you know, for strikers, about 90% of their goals can be explained by their ability to create XG rather than convert XG, the remaining 10%, their ability to mm. convert XG as a kind of rough, rough kind of guide. Yeah. And that surprised a lot of people because you think the best strike is all about finishing. But when you watch when you watch the top players, it really is their ability just, and it's really fun when you appreciate that, just watching the little movements that players make, the little first touches, the little things that they do that creates a space. That's what differentiates the top talent. And the goalkeeper, the flip side would be, and and maybe there's expected saves, right? Is that the yeah. is that the reciprocal for goalkeepers? Is that they perform, but there it must be execution, right? They're, yeah. So goal, goalkeepers are still probably an under-analyzed um, aspect of um, of football, and there's some some real experts out there who who analyze just goalkeepers and and build their own expected saves models that are much more kind of context driven and and so on. They're still, I, I would say, they're probably analytically from a lot of the models that exist at one of the hardest positions to evaluate. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, I interrupted your, your, you're moving on to other data points. Cause I just had, I had to ask that about it. Yeah, no, so go go on. Um, so yeah, another data points. Yeah, absolutely right. The question is absolutely right. There, there is a lot of noise. And, and the one question we always say, whenever we look at data is, is so what, like the number one thing you should care about is, is so what, like, what does this mean? And, and the, so what can mean different things. It can mean, it improves your chances of winning. It means it might be predictive of a future better performance at an individual level. It might be kind of inherent to, to a coach's game model. Um, but but often, I suppose what we try and focus on is, is you know, does this, does the metric kind of, is it associated with winning? So a, a really good example that you often see um, is, you know, coaches fixate on high intensity uh, runs or sprints during a game. Yes. Yeah. And, it's a very blunt, it's a, a, it's a very simple metric. It's very easy to understand, but it's a very blunt instrument because one of the things I remember looking at this with, with the Premier League Club a number of years ago now, one of the things that high intensity runs, which is essentially running over, I think, uh, five and a half meters per second correlates yeah. with is how much the opposition, how much distance the opposition runs in high intensity runs. So, you know, how much a team runs in a game is kind of inextricably linked with what the opposition are doing. And therefore, the, the intensity of a game of itself dictates, you know, how hard you're working rather than some kind of inherent sense of how hard you're working. It's kind of yeah. all interlinked with the opposition. And, and suddenly I remember showing this to the, to 
the manager at the time and and it kind of clicked for him and it, and he basically then was able to understand the context of certain situations where his players didn't need to run as much or certain games where players did need to run more and actually what you found was that the team was running less when they were leading and that's because they typically in most sports when you're leading you tend to defend your lead you tend to become a bit more um you know tend to sit back a bit more and when you're sitting back a bit more you tend to not need to run as much because you, yeah. you want to be compact. You don't, you don't want to be running all over the place if you're defending. Right. You want to be yeah, compact. Yeah. Exactly. You compress the space. So. Yeah. yeah. So suddenly yeah. this stat, which people have obsessed over doing more of, actually in some cases might be better to do less of. Um, and so we always kind of ask the so what? So does it correlate with winning? Do teams that do this actually win more matches or is it winning that causes the stat to be more, you know, trying to understand the causality on it? So I think that's where, to the point I was making earlier about understanding players, a lot of the numbers you see out there are very context-driven, very noisy, and you should always be asking, like, does this matter? Like, should I care about it? And it will matter different for different teams. Uh, Mm -hmm. And there isn't, I wouldn't say there's, like, any holy grail (laughs) metrics out there in the same way that XG, again, will be influenced by things like game state. And, you know, if you, Man City often will kind of take an early lead, 2-0, got, uh, you know, maybe Holland's kind of had a, had a good day. He's made a couple of good finishes, and then you know, the rest of the game will be a totally different story. And it looks like they're not created anything, but actually, they've been two 0 up. So that there's there's a whole, yeah, as always on on data, and you would say this, you know, context is is so important. Yeah, it's funny about the high intensity running because two two things. I remember in 2010, I did some analysis of distances run, mostly because I was curious to see how the games at altitude here in South Africa would differ from sea level. And you almost never found a game where the two teams ran different distances by more than about 3%. So if a team's collective earnings was a hundred thousand, the other team would be between 98 and 102 every single time. It was almost never find disparities. And the other funny one, and I don't know if this happened in football was when GPS units were first introduced in rugby the players very quickly sussed that they were being evaluated on the basis of distances run. And so one very high profile player, one of the greatest international players ever had worked this out. He's a smart guy. And every time there was a break in play, he'd sprint between the try line and the 22. And after the game was finished, everyone said, look at how much distance he ran. He's working so hard because <laughs> he'd figured out how to game the system. Did that happen in football? It absolutely happened in football. So I, my career started out at a company called Prozone, who were kind of pioneers in collecting physical um, distance sprints and, and so on data. And in the early days, um, one of the stories, and this might be apocryphal, but certainly one of the stories I heard from kind of staff at Prozone is that there was a, a, a player, David Ginola, French oh, player, who was yeah, kind of a yeah. flair, flair player in, in English football. And the coaches wanted him to kind of wrap, you know, cover more distance in a game because now suddenly they can measure it and obviously when you suddenly measure something it becomes important rather than working out what's important first but they 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 couldn't get him to run as much as they got the goalkeeper and i want to say it was someone like david james i can't remember off the top of my head to do exactly that when the ball is up the other end of the field just do sprints back and forth in his in his penalty area just to kind of show that even the goalkeeper is running more more than you in a game so yeah it's <laughs> it's not unheard of you, you don't you don't get that so much anymore i think um that there's a bit more savviness to it but yeah the the idea that there is still i think as a maybe it's harsh term, but a kind of laziness in assuming that more distance is better. And that I didn't, I, w- I wasn't aware of that analysis that you did at the World Cup. I think that's, it's really interesting that there's very little difference between the teams that the, mm. the, the kind of profile of the game makes such an impact on, on the distance run. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
couple other questions we, we mentioned you mentioned we spoke about earlier the 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 imbalance in the major competitions um where you have it and, and some are worse than others i mean france i think stands out particularly badly right with psg other than draft and financial salary cap and so on, is there anything about the structure of the competition that you recommend you would change to try and address that? Like, yes. Or have we covered that, do you think? Yeah, I think, I mean, we covered it to a degree in the, in the kind of playoffs chat. The one thing I would say about it is that it's a kind of, if you if you try and change the format, it's addressing the symptoms rather than the cause. Um, mm. You're trying to engineer randomness into a competition that isn't naturally random if it's kind of a natural league setup. So, yeah, so salary caps, salary caps for me are in an ideal world, the solution in, in English football or in European football, because it allows everyone to kind of invest up to a certain level um, and, and therefore, um, you know, means that, you know, you can have similar teams on similar budgets kind of competing against each other. Whereas at the moment you get this kind of stratification. It's just, my understanding is just not possible because of European law um, and therefore, you know, it's very difficult to implement. So, yeah, there's there's a big big challenge to mm. what European football does going forward. Mm-hmm. Another one is that um, as we go into this, this podcast will come out for listeners between the round of 16 and the round of eight, the quarterfinal. So guaranteed that in three places in the world in the next two weeks, some fans will bemoan penalty shootouts as a lottery and say there has to be a better way to decide matches. <laughs> do you reckon they should do away with a penalty shootout? Should they do golden goal, silver goal? Uh, is there an alternative that would eliminate that? Or are you happy with the penalty as the best way to settle a draw in a knockout game? Um, yeah, good question. So if we wrote back to the, obviously we've got extra time and the penalties at the moment, the golden goal um, solution was used, I think 98, 2002 World Cups, um, other European championships as well. Um, and obviously that's, you know, whoever scores the, the goal in extra time wins. There was a feeling that that encouraged more defensive play because you were petrified of conceding that goal. Yeah. And interestingly, we looked at this quite recently uh, for, for a competition that was considering changing its um, extra time rules. And and actually we found it that didn't stack up, actually. The, the amount of kind of goalless, golden goal extra time periods is the same, pretty much the same as goalless, normal extra time periods. So I'm not necessarily against golden goal, um, but extra time periods, I think um, about half, maybe slightly less than half, tend to be goalless. So normally when you get to the extra 30 minutes at the end of the game, players are tired, there is that natural cautiousness. It, they're not exciting periods. And I, I do think penalties are probably the best way. And going back to the point right at the start around unpredictability of, of football, the penalty shootout is almost like the T20 eyesation of football mm, in some ways. Yeah, you know, it's like yeah. the ultimate unpredictable coin flip. And, and, and that's that's not to say yeah. that there's no skill in penalty shootouts. It's just that they're very hard to predict. And I think that those are two slightly different things. Yeah, I mean, I've I've watched since 1990 World Cup, and I must say that the most deflating experience I, um, in football I remember is that finals decided when the, when the World mm. Cup final is decided on penalties I, yeah. I always feel even as a neutral my team's never going to be in it <laughs> as a South African but even then it's it's not great so just some stats and these might be different now you feel free to correct me but in 2010 when I looked at this about 63% of matches in the knockout phase in World Cups European Championships and the Copa America ended in 90 minutes and 38% go to extra time. And then of the extra time, there's a 60-40 split. 60% go to penalties and 40% to extra time. I, I don't know. I, would, I wouldn't imagine that's changed too much. But what it means is that one-fifth of all knockout matches go to penalties. 
And so I read a theory at that time that was interesting. It said, because now the game's going to go to 120 minutes and there's going to be a penalty shootout in more than half the instances. Do the penalty shootout before the extra time and give the winner of the penalty shootouts an away goal or a one goal advantage, an away goal, which basically is half a goal, think of, right? So they start extra time nil-nil, but one team is going to win unless team B can also score a goal because then the whole dynamic changes. And there was another stat linked to that was with if, if a goal was scored in the first five minutes of extra time, then a second goal would be scored in three quarters of all extra time periods. And if no goal scored, then it stays that way in half the instances. So the first five minutes of extra time dictate the tempo of the, of the whole 30 minutes. And the average number of goals in extra time, if there's no early goal, was 0.7. And if there was an early goal, was 2.2. So you can see how if, if nothing happens in the first five minutes, it makes or breaks the excitement product. So therefore, put the penalties first and give a team a goal head start, basically, and see what happens. What do you reckon? Uh, first, it's a really fascinating analysis, and it ties up. <laughs> I, I didn't necessarily have the numbers to hand, but it ties up exactly about um the way that i think about football and the way that the numbers kind of support um all the evidence backs it is that firstly football is higher scoring when there's uh, a team needs to win and needs to go and score so if you look at goals per minute if you like as a metric when the scores are level so nil nil one one whatever generally it's lower scoring because both teams are kind of afraid of um of kind of falling behind so um, going, uh, having a team needing to go for uh, a goal tends to make football mm. more exciting. Um, so I think yeah. that penalty shootout solution does that. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, anyone who's ever listened to me on a podcast before will will hear me advocating for the away goals rule, uh, which yeah. which kind of caused that a lot more in extra time periods with team and normal time periods where teams had to go for a goal. So I, I quite like I quite like a solution. I it's far too. Uh, far too edgy for football, traditional football to, to implement, but uh, I, I don't mind it at all. I also love the away goal. Some of my best football matches I've seen are games where a team is winning 2-0 in the second leg of a Champions League semi-final and it's still alive. Yeah. Because one goal on the other side means the next team needs two more. It's tremendous. I really enjoyed that. Um, maybe just to wrap up, because I know you are busy, you've got other things going always, but especially now... Where does analysis go next? I mean, there's a there's a sentiment that I've heard from a few people that with analysis and insight, there's a risk of uniformity, that more and more teams start playing the same way. They figure out what works, what doesn't work. And so we lose the uniqueness of certain styles, cultures, and so on. Is, do you think that's a risk? And where do we go next with analysis? I think that is a risk. And I think that's been very clear in a lot of other sports um, where yeah. the role of Data has shown that, you know, in um, in golf, driving is is massively important. So you suddenly see a lot of kind of big hitters come onto the scene. My understanding of basketball has is, is changed the way that the game is played in terms of being yeah. less, um, more, more three-point shooting and so on. Football's not totally gone down that route, although the biggest change you've seen, partly because of XG, is far less shooting outside the box. So less kind of crazy... 30-yard efforts, which maybe is, is a bit of a shame. I, yeah. I don't think you'll see the total homogenization of uh of football playing styles just because there are different ways to win. You can have different, you can have a big number nine versus kind of smaller midfielders, and they all have kind of different strengths and weaknesses and, and so on. Um, but I, I I think there is a risk for sure, having seen what other sports have gone down. Uh, I think the emphasis at the moment in using data in football is still very much focused on. Um, in, in the space of recruitment rather than 
match analysis and, and playing styles and kind of optimal playing styles. So I think we'll, mm. until it really kind of permeates that space, then, then you probably still have the diversity of, of teams and approaches. But, um, but yeah, f- football, again, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be complacent that it might become very same. And, and in some respects, actually, if you look at the, the top teams in Europe, they do play very similar styles of football now. So yeah. um, something to something to watch out for. Yeah. And then and that, that question, by the way, was from Owen Zerilli, also a patron. And he did have a second question, which kind of follows on from the recruitment side of it is you work with a number of clubs. Where do you see the role of academies um, now? Because with, with more and more data and globalization, you can analyze a second division match in Argentina now. Why would a why would a club ever invest in an academy when it can invest in cheaper recruitment? What what's the model going to evolve there, and how's data going to influence it? Yeah, good question. So, firstly, if I start in England, academies become more important because of the Brexit regulations. So suddenly, right. it's much harder to yeah. recruit players from from the EU and, and overseas. So academies become more important. I think they are also because um, of financial inequality, more clubs having kind of greater share of of revenue. For the big clubs, yeah, I'd argue academy is kind of less important. But if you're a club in Croatia or a club in uh, Austria or wherever, uh, the only way you can make money nowadays is to sell players uh, and therefore produce players um, is, is the cheapest way of kind of, you know, from your academy, is the cheapest way of kind of generating those players and then selling them on. Like in, in some leagues, we see kind of 40 plus percent of income generated for the whole league is, is from selling players to, to the big five leagues pr- predominantly. So huh. it's still, it's still a really important model. Um, but you may see this skew towards uh, academy development um, in, in kind of smaller teams and smaller leagues um, as a result of, of those kind of financial pressures. Yeah. I did read that a couple of clubs in England had said they're not going to do academies anymore. Am I right? Southampton? Surely not. That's been such a successful I academy. I don't think Southampton. I mean, Brentford didn't for a period of time, um, but they now are re-implementing, they even kind of fully re-implemented their, their academy. So mm-hmm. I think most now recognise that it's super important. And actually the, the, the standards that the Premier League have now set with their HRP programme on, on academies means that we're producing some very, very good players in this country. And, and I mm, think it would be mm, remiss not to be producing those players. Cool. My, uh, my last question before I'll hand over back to Mike is, is when you watch this World Cup now, back to this specific tournament, um, you've obviously been armed with so much data and modelling and so forth that your, your, your mind is saying, I'm going to expect Brazil to win this tournament. But who do you, having watched now and we're almost in the knockout phase, who do you think is going to win this tournament? Uh, I mean, it looks like it's going to be Brazil, Spain, um, quarterfinal. I, I, my bet would be whoever wins that game really would, would go on to, to win it. Um, it's just, yeah, it's so tough. Because you, you, you were sitting here having watched like two or three games. Like if you're sitting two or three games into a league season, you go, oh, it's far too early to make assessments sure. about the teams. Yeah. Like it's, and, yeah. and yeah, in a World Cup, you're like, oh, this team's amazing. This team's terrible. It's just like totally different frame of reference. So yeah, I, my view hasn't changed too much. I mean, France, um, Brazil, and then having seen Spain, uh, again, I know it was, it was Costa Rica, uh, and and the German game wasn't kind of a walkover, but but those three teams seem pretty strong to me. So the thing about Spain, and sorry, I know this is another question, is I've I've wondered whether a team as young as that, because mm. uh, I mean they had they start two teenagers, they bring another twenty year old that guy Williams, I think, off the bench. A, t- a team as young as that, I'd, I've had reservation. I would have reservations about a semi final and a final pressure and players as young as that. But as a as a football entity, they seem mighty impressive. Yeah, when we looked at this pre-tournament, we found that um, team... So we, we essentially looked at general favourites in a tournament, the kind of bigger teams in, in major tournaments. 
And generally, actually, the teams that had more experience tended to not do as well. We're more likely to kind of get eliminated early. And I think that's because usually, you know, you have a two or even four year cycle leading up to a World Cup. You mm. tend to, you know, those players can move from the age of 25, 26 peak age to kind of 30 in that period of time and, and not be as good as, you know, the, the performance that delivered you in the yeah. qualification, if yeah. you like. So yeah. you can overrate experience i i agree like you know 18 19 20 is is, is very young yeah. but you know these these guys are playing champs league high profile matches now you know and important league matches so the experience these guys are getting true. such young true. ages true. yeah i would imagine there's a goldilocks zone there you know not too young not too old right in the middle and not just age, but exposure to pressure is, is where you need to be. Incidentally, in rugby, the model always was that if I start a World Cup final, my starting 15 must have 700 caps between them. And that's a lot. That's that's an average of almost uh, over 50. It's almost, mm-hmm. yeah, what's it, 50 times? In fact, it's just under 50, 48 caps per player. Wow. But I think we've seen England, New Zealand get to 1,100, and then you're actually beyond it. So there is a there is an optimal. Anyway, I, I, I could literally do this for hours, as <laughs> listeners could probably tell, but I'm not going to because I'm abusing your time. So I'll say thanks and hand it over to Mike again. Yeah, well, thank you very much for your time. It's been absolutely brilliant listening to you and uh, seeing you at, uh, obviously, you're the very sort of cold face of this of the sport, and it must be a fascinating job. I guess that's, that's part of it is that you, you seem to really enjoy what you do. Yeah, I absolutely love it. Yeah, it's, it's safe to say it's um, the diversity of the work that we that we have here. Um, you know, across those four different areas I ex- explained at the start is, is great, and and I think I find it a genuine kind of intellectual exercise. I've really enjoyed this podcast because because you've asked kind of interesting intellectual questions <laughs> rather than kind of um, you know pub chat questions, which which is great. And and I think that's part of the joy of working with the team here. We've got a lot of smart people who, um, who kind of see it as an intellectual exercise as well. I thought this was pub chat. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks, Sam. I really do appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So a massive thank you to uh, Omar Chowdhury there. And uh, for just fascinating listening to some of the Little nuggets of information I find quite amazing. And as I said right at the start of this podcast, uh, the last two, my knowledge of football has probably quadrupled, maybe even a thousand times more. Because what he says is really practical stuff as much mm. as it's data-driven, it's also practical. Yeah, you can tell that they're trying really hard and, and feels like successfully speaking the language that the user wants, whether that uses the coach or the fan. Or the sponsor, potentially. So I, it, was, it was tremendous. And I mean, I'm going to watch the rest of the World Cup with more insight because yeah. of that. It's like now I'll say, all right, maybe I'll look up an expected goal figure, but I'll understand what the striker was doing to create the expected goal in the first instance. That's one example. There are many others that I hope, yeah, I mean, I, I follow football maybe a little bit more than, than you, certainly yes, you do, but absolutely. there was stuff in there that is just, for me, eye-opening. Great stuff. I think I'll watch more of it and now. And I, I do apologize to some extent because we haven't done a lot of football on this podcast over the last couple of years. And it's it's lovely to actually do it and, and get into it. And I uh, hope that you enjoy it. So let us know what you think about our, our football coverage over the last two episodes, uh, particularly mm. around the World Cup. Um, we'd love to hear your feedback, whether you want some more stuff on football. I know it's, of course, a, a massive sport around the world and obviously lots of opportunities to do different things. Don't forget you can support us on Patreon. Have a look for Science of Sport podcast on Patreon. Also on Twitter, we are Sports Pod, And of course, Ross and myself both on Twitter individually as well. So uh, let us know what you think about this and other topics that we've discussed. But for now, it's goodbye. 
Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.